reading from Mark. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in the arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him, because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This is the word of the Lord. So we're picking back up in our series in Mark's gospel tonight with this passage. And it's uh, the unique part about this passage is that it's all one conversation, essentially, between Jesus and his disciples. And one of the things I want to point out as we dive into this passage is Mark's gospel can be broken up into essentially three parts. Uh, the first part goes from chapter 1 through uh, halfway through chapter 8, and then about halfway through chapter 8 uh, to the end of chapter 10, and then from chapter 11 all the way to the end. So the first part is, is Jesus' public ministry, his Galilean ministry is what we might say, where we've seen Jesus do remarkable things again and again and again. The middle part a lot of that disappears. We don't see a whole lot of miracles at all in this section. But what we do see are three times Jesus tells of his coming death and resurrection. And then when he, in chapter 11 to the end, Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem. And it approaches the very end of his life, culminating in his death and resurrection. Why, why tell you that? Well, the reason I want to tell you that is this middle section is all about discipleship. And as I mentioned, it's anchored by these three pronouncements of Jesus, telling his disciples what's going to happen. And so, and tonight we, we, we come to the, the second of those pronouncements, followed by his teaching to his disciples. 
as, as a result of that. And I want you just to know or to see up front that this middle section is meant to be essentially a manual of what does it look like to follow Jesus? Or we might say, what is a cross-shaped life? What does it look like for the gospel to become evident in your life? So, for example, in chapter 8, verse 34, at the, after Jesus' first pronouncement of his coming death and resurrection, he says to his disciples, after Peter you know, makes a fool out of himself, he says to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. My guess is those are probably somewhat familiar words to, to maybe many of you. But what does that mean? What does that look like? What does a cross-shaped life look like? What are its marks? You know, that's what I want to talk to you about tonight. That we're going to learn from this passage. I want to look at three things about this, this idea of a cross-shaped life. I want to look at what it is not, very briefly. I want to look at what it is, a little bit more in depth. And then finish off with, how do you get it? So we're going to look at this cross-shaped life. What, is, what it is not, what it is, and then how to get it. So first, let's look, just take a, a quick flyover of this passage, this conversation of Jesus where he has deliberately sought out time alone with them. He didn't want anyone to know where they were going because he's taking time to teach specifically his disciples. Here's what we find. This is what the cross-shaped life is not. After Jesus has told his disciples again what's going to happen, Mark tells us three things about the disciples here. In verse 32, he says, They didn't understand, and they were afraid to ask him, and then they argued. So think about this for a moment. What did they argue about? Look in verse 34. They argued about who was the greatest. Now you need, you need to see the, the contrast here. Jesus has just said for the second time, the Son of Man is going to be delivered over. He's going to die. And he's going to rise again. And what do the disciples do? They're worried about their status. They're arguing about their position. Who is the greatest in the kingdom? You couldn't have probably a more immature reaction to this message of Jesus than that one. And yet, what's so, I think, subtly convicting is, I think this is where we spend our time almost every day. We struggle to understand. We're afraid. And we're dying for validation and affirmation. Something to say, hey, you are great. So first of all, the cross-shaped life simply is not concerned with status. So we have a problem. That's the first one. The second aspect that is not like the cross-shaped life, we look in verse 38. Now, here's John, 
He says to Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Now, you need to, to, to remember here and make note of this, that uh, you know, the, the disciples, the twelve, they're chosen by Jesus. They've been with Jesus. They've been following Jesus. If anyone in the story of the gospel had the authority and the permission to cast out demons, it was these guys. But do you remember the story we looked at two weeks ago? The father who had the son, who from childhood has been possessed by an unclean spirit that has been trying to ruin him his entire life. And what, were the, what did the, the disciples do? The very end of that story, we learn they were unable to cast out that unclean spirit. But now, here is this person whom we don't know, who they didn't know, who's doing what they were incapable or incapable of doing. And John thinks he's being a dutiful disciple, says, that can't happen. He's not one of us. Now, what, what's happening here? What's happening here is the, some, this unknown person, he's ministering in Jesus' name, was able to do what the disciples could not. To put it really just briefly, the disciples had become more concerned for their reputation than for the advance of the kingdom. So the first part about what, is, what the cross-shaped life is not is that it's, it isn't concerned with status, but secondly, it isn't selfishly ambitious. What's the third mark of what the cross-shaped life is not? It doesn't make light of sin. It doesn't make light of sin. And we'll look at this in a little bit more depth here in a moment, but verses 42 to 48, really through 50, through 50 are really all about, do you, do you have any idea how serious this Christianity thing really is? It is a life or death business. It is a heaven or hell matter. And the disciples here are a sad picture of what it looks like when, when we fight more for status and success than holiness. This is what the cross-shaped life is not. It is not concerned with status. It is not selfishly ambitious. And it does not make light of sin. So if that's what it is, then let's look a little bit more in depth now. What is it? What is this thing that we're calling a cross-shaped life? What is it to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus? How would you know if the cross of Christ is beginning to make an imprint on your heart and therefore your life? Well, first of all, let's look here again a little bit more closely in verse 35 to 37. The cross-shaped life is fundamentally other-oriented. Remember what's happening here. The disciples, they don't understand and they're afraid and they're dying to find out who's the greatest. How do I know I'm okay? And Jesus remarkably I think we're intended here to see his patience with us. Verse 35, he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, 
He must be last of all and servant of all. The cross-shaped life is fundamentally other-oriented. It's the exact opposite of worrying about your status or your position. Here, the disciples, their life is getting turned upside down. They're being told that everything they knew about God and how he works in the world is in fact the opposite of that. Jesus' message and his mission is one of suffering and death, only then to be followed by glory. In other words, the kingdom of God is not cheap. It's costly. And just think for a moment. For Jesus to say this to his followers would necessarily mean that what he is talking about is going to have an impact on them. And so they're afraid. And Jesus continues to patiently work with the disciples. And he tells them, not unlike, in many ways this is an application of when Jesus says, if you would save your life, you'll lose it. But if you would lose your life for my sake in the gospel, you will save it. What might that look like? Well, here it is. To lose your life for Jesus and to thereby save it looks like becoming the last of all and the servant of all. Now, what does Jesus mean here? Well, he gives us an illustration, an object lesson. In verse 36 and 37, he They're in a house, and he takes a young child, sets him right in the middle of everybody. And then he says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Now, what does a child represent in this story, in this passage? A child represents the lowest on the social order. It's not that parents didn't love their children or or that children were important in the first century. But what Jesus is saying here, to be a servant like Jesus means that the trajectory of your heart, the trajectory of your life and your actions is always tilted towards the lowest and the least. It's always tilted towards those who demand much and can give back nothing. Now, this is particularly, I think, if you have um, your own children or you, you know children in your own family, nieces or nephews, and they're young, they're unbelievably demanding. They are exhausting. They require every ounce of resources you have, financial, mental, Emotional, spiritual. They will challenge every bit of your ability to to anger management. (laughs) Here, children are a picture of the upside-down values of the kingdom. A picture of the upside-down values of the kingdom. 
And here Jesus is giving us a picture that a cross-shaped life loves to move toward and serve those that you are the least likely to move towards. And in fact, in verse 37, this is a remarkable statement. Jesus here is an example. He is modeling what does it mean to receive one like this child. He's not calling you to be a child here. He's calling you to take a child. Notice what he does. He takes him in his arms. Now, I don't want to make too big a deal out of this and read too much into it, but think for a moment what that action symbolizes. That to be a servant like Jesus is a servant means you must get personally involved. In other words, serving according to the gospel is not something you can do at arm's length. It means you actually would envelop someone and bring them as close to you as if you were hugging your own family member. The the cross-shaped life is fundamentally other-oriented. But not only that, it's a, it, has a, it cultivates a gospel-centered ambition. What do I mean by that? Look again here in verse 39 to 41. After John, again, he's, he's come back and he's uh, telling Jesus about this guy who's not one of them, doesn't belong to them. He's somebody else and he shouldn't be doing what he's doing. What's Jesus say? Do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. See, Jesus here is saying, the kingdom is bigger than us. Yes, you are my 12 disciples. Yes, I appointed you. Yes, you will be the foundation of the church. You will be my appointed representatives to speak on my behalf, and it will change the world forever. But do not think that you are it. You have, more, you have unity with anyone who serves me in my name. Now, I, I don't know if you thought about this, but let me press on this a little bit. What Jesus has to say right here is the antidote to all of your envy of other people's success. Have you ever been mad or jealous of somebody else's success? That's what the disciples have right here. This guy's casting out demons, but we couldn't do that. That Jesus, something's not right here. And Jesus says, "Do not stop him." How do you know if your life is becoming more shaped by the cross? One of the ways you know that is you, you no longer are jealous of other people's success. You begin to celebrate it. You begin to pray for it. You begin to support it. You begin to get involved for it. And this is, I, I'm speaking as much to myself as I am to any of us. This is a particular problem of Presbyterian and Reformed people. 
that we think oftentimes that we have got it figured out. And I'm just here to tell you, we don't. And our theology even tells us that. If we really believe what we say, that we are sinners saved by grace alone, we should never have an inflated sense of self. We should always celebrate the success of others, particularly other Christians who, in Jesus' name, are laboring for the kingdom, especially when their labors are rewarded and there is success and there's fruit and we see the kingdom come in their efforts. So not only is the the cross-shaped life other-oriented and it cultivates a gospel-centered ambition, it takes sin seriously. Now this is one of the most, I think, uh, shall we say, uh, jugular passages in the New Testament. Jesus here is teaching us about the seriousness of sin. And I'm under no delusions that even that word is unpopular in our day and time. Uh, But Jesus thought it was a serious, serious problem. And I just want to point out a couple things about what does it mean to take sin seriously? First of all, it means you recognize the danger of it. You see it for what it really is. Notice what Jesus does here. Here, Jesus tells us that the dangers of sin reach into eternity. Several times he mentions hell in this passage. Now, I also know that that is probably one of the the most unpopular concepts in our day and time as well. But here's the problem. Jesus, who is often hailed as the most loving, gentle, patient, kind figure in human history, also talks about hell more than anyone else in the Bible. And it was so awful, there was no sacrifice uh, too great to avoid it. And Jesus here tells us the danger of sin is eternal separation from God. It's hell. It's unquenchable fire where the worm does not die. These are all very traumatic images. Now what are we to make of that? Here in this this term that's translated hell is in Greek Gehenna, which is in the first century, referred to a trash pit outside of Jerusalem that was always smoldering. And by Jesus' time, it became a metaphor for the fate after death of anyone who rejected God's ways, rejected following him. So Jesus here, he's giving you profound imagery about what happens when we don't take sin seriously. The imagery here is terrifying. It's not saying so much about a physical place, though, although I think it's real. I, just, I don't know where it is. The point of the words and the imagery here is that it's far worse than you could possibly imagine. 
And let me flip it around for you. There's a, a verse in Revelation chapter 21 that describes the new heavens and the new earth as having streets paved with gold. Have you ever thought about that? What would it be like to have a city with streets paved with gold? Well, you've never seen a city like that. What's the point? The new heavens and the new earth is way better than you could possibly imagine. Hell is way worse than you could possibly imagine. That's the point of these metaphors and these images. It's dangerous. Sin is dangerous. But notice second, there is no sacrifice too big to turn from it. Jesus here says, if your hand would cause you to sin, cut it off. If your foot would cause you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Now, what does he, does he mean here, you literally should do that? I have yet to find any commentator who says yes, which I'm really glad about. <laughs> I know you are too. But you know what? There's something even more trenchant in view here. The reason why Jesus isn't being literal about you should cut your hand or your, your foot off is because if you actually did that, that really won't deal with your sin. Plucking your eye out, cutting your hand off, cutting your foot off will not change your heart. Jesus is talking here about universal obedience. That to take sin seriously means you move beyond being bothered by sin because it's inconvenient for you in certain areas in your life to a universal assault and hatred for sin in every area of your life. One writer puts it like this, you cannot cut off a specific sin that is troubling you unless you are seeking to obey the Lord from the heart in all areas of your life. That's overwhelming to me. I can't do that. I wonder how this sounds to you. You see, a cross-shaped life, it's other-oriented. It cultivates a gospel-centered ambition, and it takes sin seriously. So how do you get this cross-shaped life? How do you get it? Well, first of all, you got to be honest. You got to be honest about why you are following Jesus. Remember the disciples back in verse 34. Jesus has just asked them, what were you discussing on the way and what do we see happen? The disciples kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Let me ask you this. As you listen to me talking to you from this passage, or as we sing, or as you hear the scriptures read, is Jesus stepping into your life and asking you, what are you questioning? What are you discussing? And are you silent? Are you hiding? 
from Jesus. You need to be honest about why you're following Jesus. We need to trust Jesus with what we don't want to admit. And what do we see from this passage that we don't want to admit? What do we want? We want status. We want success. And we want cheap grace. So first of all, how we get this is you've got to be honest with Jesus. Second, in fact, before I move on, I want to read you this one quote about this. I think it helps crystallize what's happening here. N.T. Wright uh, puts it like this. If we are thinking that by following Jesus, we will enhance our own prestige, our sense of self-worth, which is so highly prized today, but so easily leading to a narcissistic sense that the gospel exists to make us feel good about ourselves, or even our bank balance, then we're very unlikely to be able to hear what God is actually saying. When the scriptures address you, and they confront you, don't remain silent like the disciples. It's a doorway to new life. It's an opportunity for confession. It's an opportunity to discover grace. So first of all, I've got to be honest if, if we're to get this cross-shaped life. But secondly, you need to know that the cross-shaped life is worth it. You need to know the cost is worth it. And I want to take you to Hebrews chapter 12 as, as, we, as we wrap up here. In Hebrews chapter 12, you need to know that this life of following Jesus is worth it. How do you know that? Well, look in Hebrews chapter 12 if you have a Bible. What do we see there? The writer says to us, look to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of his Father. How do you know the cross-shaped life is worth it? You know that because Jesus was victorious over it. Jesus has lived the cross-shaped life. Literally. He hung on a cross in the shape of that cross. Jesus endured it. He despised it. In other words, in the end, it had no power over him. However painful and excruciating it was, it could not keep him in the grave. You need to know that on the other side of a cross-shaped life is resurrection. And the only way you can know that, especially when that cross presses into you in ways that you don't think you can bear and frankly you can't, is that you know that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, that's good news. But we also need to be honest. The cross-shaped life is hard. The sacrifices involved here, these are not child's play. So how do you endure? Let me keep reading here. In 
verse 3 and 4 of the same chapter, the writer says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And listen to this. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. What do you need to do to endure? Here the writer tells you, consider him who endured. That word considered means to meditate on or to compare yourself to or to reflect upon. It's an invitation to look at the life of Jesus, compare your life to his, and draw life from it. There is no other place to go to find endurance. In fact, this whole passage right in this part of Hebrews 12 is about a race, an endurance race. The only way we find endurance is by looking to Jesus in union with him, in fellowship with him. So how do you get this cross-shaped life? We have to be honest with Jesus. You need to be convinced that it's worth it. And you need to know where to go to find endurance. You need to go back to the gospel. You need to go back to what Jesus is saying to his disciples at the beginning of this passage. He's headed to the cross. And the one thing the disciples didn't seem to ever really lock into was the very last bit. He will rise again on the third day. Let me finish with this. Why, then, do we need this cross-shaped life? This life that is oriented towards others, that has a gospel-centered ambition and that's committed to putting sin to death in your life. Why do you need it? Here's why. Because it means that Jesus is at work in your life. If you want to know, are you a Christian? You need to look for these things in your life. You need to pray for these things in your life. You need to encourage in one another these things in your lives. He is reproducing his life in you. These are the marks of what supernatural grace looks like this side of heaven. It's proof of what Jesus said in John's gospel when he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. How do you know if you're on the way? How do you know if you have this truth? How do you know if this life is in you? The cross-shaped life is the answer to that. Let's together ask Jesus to make this cross-shaped life real for us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this is a hard passage. Uh, it, it cuts us open. Uh, it leaves us bare. It's even terrifying. And yet I pray, as that may be the case, please, by your grace, Help us to see the cross for what it really is. Your victory over sin and death. We pray, Father, that by your Spirit, you would apply the life of Jesus to us. That you would imprint on us his cross. That we'd be conformed to his image. Father, we we pray that you would help us to love nothing more 
than to be the least and to serve all. Pray, Father, that you would help us to rejoice and to celebrate and to, to seek after your kingdom through the success of others. And Father, we pray that you would give us such a uh, commitment to die to sin, even as our Savior was committed to going to the cross for us. Father, would you make all of that so? In Jesus' name, amen.